My dear fellow clergymen, while confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling my present activities unwise and untimely. Seldom do I pause to answer criticism of my work and ideas. If I sought to answer all the criticism that criticisms that cross my desk, my secretaries would have little time for anything other than such correspondence in the course of the day, and I would have no time for constructive work. But since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill and that your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I want to try to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. Never before have I written so long a letter. I'm afraid it is much too long to take your precious time. I can assure you that it would have been much shorter if I had been writing from a comfortable desk. But what else can one do when he is alone in a narrow jail cell other than write long letters, think long thoughts, and pray long prayers? I'm Anthony Mako, and yours for the cause of peace and brotherhood, Martin Luther King Jr. Welcome to Postmodern Liturgy. Postmodern liturgy exists in a couple different forms. This podcast is a chance to reflect on the weekly readings in the liturgical calendar the week before they actually occur. So, this podcast comes out on Mondays and uses the readings for the following Sunday. Our distinctive is that we try to apply a variety of postmodern lenses to the text, especially offering space for deconstruction and doubt. I also write and record all the music specifically for this podcast. You can engage in more material at postmodernliturgy.com. You can follow us on social media at Postmodern Liturgy on Facebook and Instagram and at PM Liturgy on Twitter. And if you're so inclined, you can join our wonderful group of supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash postmodernliturgy. This week is a little interesting. I've often tried to say I really hesitate to use my own words to express the perspective of others. At the same time, this episode is releasing on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and I want to honor that. I don't honor him out of some obligation. I honor him for this reason. I need to admit that early in my life, I viewed Martin Luther King Jr.'s connection to Christianity as superficial at best. If I'm in full confession mode, I believe that I used to have a condescending view of the black church in general. If I recall correctly, I might liken it to the way Judaism can be described in cultural terms or religious terms. Sometimes it's both, 
or some, sometimes it's one or the other. Of course, I realize now that I was wrong. I can't even begin to justify or explain my naivete. I can only say I am truly sorry. However, I didn't realize how wrong I was until one of my assignments for a class was to read Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail. It was upon this reading that I realized not only was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s relationship to Christianity not superficial, but in reality, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., in addition to being a hero for justice, a powerful speaker, and a Christian martyr, he was also a brilliant theologian. One of my favorites, in fact. It is in the spirit of my realization that I bring you this episode this week, which contains several lengthy excerpts from Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail. Rather than give you my own reflection this week, we will allow Dr. King's words to be the reflection. All the scripture readings will still take place, but after each one, there will be one or two excerpts from the letter. I've never asked you to do this before, but I will this time. Please listen to this whole episode. Fight your distractions. Allow yourself the time. These words are crucial. Now, before we sit in the beautiful tension between the scripture readings and Dr. King's words, I'd like to say a few words of introduction. First, since we aren't digging directly into the theme this week, it's worth noting that the readings this week for the third Sunday after Epiphany deal with the idea of following Jesus. Jesus continues to call disciples and to begin his public ministry. But there's also the understanding that following Jesus requires sacrifice. Our sacrifice is not alone, though. It is rooted in the sacrifice of Jesus, who endured what Catherine Keller calls the sacrifice of incarnation, and who would eventually endure the suffering of the cross. Our journey to suffer with those who suffer begins here also. Speaking of suffering with those who suffer, this is where introduction point two comes in. You may wonder, how do these words from Dr. King align with the readings this week? and with the third Sunday after Epiphany. This begs the question, what does it actually mean to follow the one who suffers alongside those who suffer? The answer should be abundantly clear at the end of this episode, but in short, if the incarnation is not good news for all things and all people, then it isn't good for anyone or anything. Remember how last week was about order? Well, there's another word for something like cosmic holy order. And that word is justice. Finally, a little context for the letter from the Birmingham jail. It was written by Dr. King on April 16, 1963, in response to several white clergymen who considered his actions, to put it kindly, inappropriate. He had been arrested for not having a permit for protesting, and the ministers were condemning him for breaking the law. The audio that I'm using was recorded later, and, as I said, these are only excerpts. If you never do anything else I ask you to do, please read this whole letter. I'll put a link in the show notes. 
I've really tried to limit and simplify the music this week for a couple reasons. The clips are long, and the recording quality isn't awesome. But they absolutely deserve to be the feature. With all that being said, let's go to the readings this week. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. There will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. In the former time, the Lord brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. It is an historical fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. Individuals may see the moral light and voluntarily give up their unjust posture. But as Reinhold Niebuhr has reminded us, groups tend to be more immoral than individuals. We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have yet to engage in a direct action campaign that was well-timed in the view of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see with one of our distinguished jurists that justice too long delayed is justice denied. We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. The nations of Asia and Africa 
are moving with jet-like speed toward gaining political independence. But we still creep at horse and buggy pace toward gaining a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. Perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the sting dots of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that Fun Town is closed to colored children and see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky and see her beginning to start, distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness toward white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? Psalm 27, verse 1 and verses 4 through 9. Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Yahweh is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? One thing I asked of Yahweh, that will I seek after, to live in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life to behold the beauty of Yahweh, and to inquire in God's temple. For God will hide me in God's shelter in the day of trouble. God will conceal me under the cover of God's tent. God will set me high on a rock. Now my head is lifted up, above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in God's tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, and make melody to Yahweh. Hear, O Yahweh, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. Come, my heart says, seek God's face. Your face, Yahweh, do I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You who have been my help, do not cast me off. Do not forsake me. O God of my salvation.
I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must, must confess that over the past few years I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you and the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time, and who constantly advises a Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. We will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the hateful words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. First Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 18. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are many quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, 
but to us who are being saved. It is the power of God. I'm in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the prophets of the century BC left their villages and carried there, thus saith the Lord, far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns. And just as the apostle Paul left his village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Greco-Roman world, so am I compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my own hometown. Like Paul, I must constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. Moreover, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. You deplore the demonstrations taking place in Birmingham, but your statement, I am sorry to say, fails to express a similar concern for the conditions that brought about the demonstrations. I am sure that none of you would want to rest content with a superficial kind of social analysis that deals merely with effects and does not grapple with underlying causes. It is unfortunate that demonstrations are taking place in Birmingham, but it is even more unfortunate that the city's white power structure left the Negro community with no alternative. Matthew 4, verses 12 through 23. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali. On the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and the shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, 
his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. I must honestly reiterate that I have been disappointed with the church. I do not say this as one of those negative critics who can always find something wrong with the church. I say this as a minister of the gospel who loves the church, who was nurtured in its bosom, who has been sustained by its spiritual blessings, and who will remain true to it as long as the cords of life shall lengthen. When I was suddenly catapulted into the leadership of the bus protest in Montgomery, Alabama a few years ago, I felt we would be supported by the white church. But this never came through. All too many ministers found themselves more cautious than courageous and remained silent behind the safe security of stained glass windows. In spite of my shattered dreams, I came to Birmingham with the hope that the white religious leadership of this community would see the justice of our cause and with deep moral concern would serve as a channel through which our just grievances could reach the power structure. I had hoped that each of you would understand, but again I have been disappointed. But I have longed to hear white ministers declare follow this decree because integration is morally right and because the Negro is your brother. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churchmen stand on the sideline and mouth pious irrelevances and sanctimonious trivialities. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard many ministers say those are social issues with which the gospel has no concern. I have traveled the length and breadth of Alabama, Mississippi, and all the other southern states on sweltering summer days and crisp altar mornings. I have looked at the South's beautiful churches with their lofty spires pointing heavenward. I have beheld the impressive outlines of a massive religious education buildings. Over and over I have found myself asking, what kind of people worship here? Who is their God? Where were their voices when the lips of Governor Barnett drip with words of interposition and nullification? Where were they when Governor Wallace gave a clarion call for defiance and hatred? Where were their voices of support and bruised and weary Negro men and women decided to rise from the dark dungeons of complacency to the bright hills of creative protest. Yes, these questions are still in my mind. 
In deep disappointment, I have wept over the laxity of the church, but be assured that my tears have been tears of love. There can be no disappointment where there is not deep love. Yes, I love the church. How could I do otherwise? I am in the rather unique position of being the son, the grandson, and the great-grandson of preachers. Yes, I see the church as the body of Christ, but oh, how we have blemished and scarred that body through social neglect and through fear of being nonconformist. There was a time when the church was very powerful, in the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believe. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven called by God to obey God rather than man, small in number. They were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. Things are different now. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring and forfeit the loyalty of millions and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Perhaps I have once again been too optimistic. Is organized religion too inextricably bound to the status quo to save our nation and world? I hope the church as a whole will meet the challenge of this decisive hour. But even if the church does not come to the aid of justice, I have no despair about the future. I have no fear about the outcome of our struggle in Birmingham, even if our motives are at present misunderstood. We will reach the goal of freedom in Birmingham and all over the nation. That does it for this week's episode. I'd love if you would join us online. We're at postmodernliturgy.com. We are at Postmodern Liturgy on Facebook and Instagram and at PM Liturgy on Twitter. Deposits start today for the Pacific Northwest trip, so if you're interested, make sure to click on the Experiences tab on our website. And finally, I'd love if you would consider supporting our work 
for free by sharing and rating and reviewing the podcast or financially at patreon.com slash postmodernliturgy. If you visit our Patreon site, you can see several great benefits for our supporters. Thanks again for joining me and enjoy the tension. My citing the creation of tension as part of the work of the nonviolent resistor may sound rather shocking, but I must confess that I am not afraid of the word tension. I have earnestly opposed violent tension, but that is a type of constructive nonviolent tension which is necessary for growth. Just as Socrates felt that it was necessary to create a tension in the mind so that individuals could rise from the bondage of myths and half-truths to the unfettered realm of creative analysis and objective appraisal, so must we see the need for nonviolent gadflies to create the kind of tension in society that will help men rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding and brotherhood.